Well, good morning again, church. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 20 this morning. We're going to be looking at a whole bunch of verses, the first three. Um, But uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And and my son from the Marine Corps is out. Uh, He'll bring a Bible to your seat. You can follow along with us. You can armor wrestle with them if you want while you're at it. But, uh, that's it, huh? Okay. Revelation chapter 20, first three verses this morning. Apostle John writes in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. The title of my message this morning is Time to Clean Up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in your word Lord, to read of these events that we know will shortly take place. And Lord, we recognize as we do that you are a God that's in control. And Lord, you are a God that wants what's absolutely best for our lives. Lord, for all to come to repentance and to know you as Lord and as Savior. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that hasn't made that commitment to you, has not surrendered their heart and life to you, they're not born again, Lord, especially we pray. Touch their heart, touch their life, reveal yourself to them, help them to respond to you, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, as we study it, Lord, we pray that we would gain not only information but application in our lives to change us, make us more like you as we walk with you, waiting for your return. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One thing we know for sure but our kids downstairs in Sunday school are very, very smart. You can't, in fact, they're way too smart. One Sunday school teacher asked her class on a Sunday, if I sold my house and my car and had a big garage and gave all of my money to the church, would I get to heaven? No, all the children answered. If I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard, kept everything neat and tidy, would I get to heaven? Again, the answer was no. Well, he continued, then how do I get to heaven? A five-year-old boy shouted, you got to be dead. (laughs) Simple to the point. There it is. What we have been seeing through our studies in Revelation is that a lot of people will die that won't be going to heaven. See, to catch us up to where we're at in our text this morning, the Antichrist has already come, set up his kingdom upon the earth. He'd been ruling with his ten-nation confederacy that all led to the bloodiest battle of all time, the Battle of Armageddon. We pointed out last week that the bloodshed will be taking place. It'll be uh, so bad, it'll be quite possibly nuclear war. Millions are already dead. We looked at how Jesus is going to return with us, his saints, and, and from just a word from the Lord, the battle's over, before it's even begun. Just, just, just a word. But then there's some cleaning up that has to be done afterwards. And that's what we're going to look at 
This morning we're going to look at the, the, the power of the devil in our lives and what that means. If you're taking notes, we're going to see four things. Number one, the stench. Number two, the servant. Number three, the seizing. And number four, the sentencing. First and foremost, the stench. Back up to verse 17 of chapter 19 for a moment. We read there that the angel comes on the scene and he's uh, standing in the sun where everyone can see him and he cries with a loud voice so everyone can hear. And he speaks to the, to the birds in the air in verse 17 and 18. It says, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. In other words, birds, come on over here to the Valley of Megiddo. There's going to be a buffet like you've never had before. A little bit of roadkill, a little bit of horse meat, a little bit of captains of flesh. I mean, it's it's all over. The Lord is saying here, listen, I don't want this place a mess when I set up my millennial kingdom. I mean, at this point, spirit's gone, the stench remains, it's the aftermath of God's judgment. Well, I thank God for him creating the birds, the vultures, the crows. If it weren't for the vultures, then roadkill would just pile up on our roads and and things that would stay in the ground would be dead forever. It would be a mess. But these birds, they take care of it. You know, when you see a bird hovering around like that, you know there's something down there, something dead or dying. We have these turkey vultures at our home, and, and they like to sit on the power lines that are up there, and, and they're huge. But, you know, it's like, I want to shout at them, nothing's dead down there, okay? It's like, keep moving. It's like they're waiting for me. It's like, no, no, you know, come on. Well, these birds are to consume every dead creature to bring about the cleansing. And, and, and to take away, really, the defilement, the plagues that could happen as a result of the flesh rotting, especially to the degree that it's going to happen there in this valley of Megiddo. Because as we've read, judgment is coming. There is coming a time where God will say, hey, you shed the blood of the saints, I'm going to shed your blood. The day when God will bring vengeance upon uh, this world upon the, he will judge the nations. And then look at verse 20 of chapter 19. And we looked at this last week, but we read, the beast, which is the Antichrist, was captured. And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, but which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were, and mark this, cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Cast into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Now, I don't know if that, if that hits you the same way it hits me. But to be thrown into anything with the word fire in it is a scary thing. I mean, if you ever burnt yourself from fire, you know that it's not the kind of pain that goes away instantly or easily. So imagine the type of burn you would feel being thrown into a lake of fire. Then imagine this with me, if that you would not die. In other words, you just continue to burn and burn, but you would never be burned up. Think about being cast into the lake of fire. Now understand, when judgment comes, this lake of fire is not something that's ever going to be put out. And people will be alive in there for eternity. Because death does not mean ceasing to exist. It's not going into darkness. It's not going into nothingness. Death is something that when we get to that place in our lives, 
when we get to that time, we will go to, to into one of two places. Either, either into heaven, into glory, in the presence of God, because we've confessed our sin, we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, or we're going to go to hell because we rejected that free gift of salvation. We rejected Jesus Christ. And again, this place of hell, this eventual place, lake of fire, doesn't go out. There's weeping, there's gnashing of teeth, there's torment. Now there's something within our logic, really within our culture, that likes to deny that fact. Oh, that's not true. Hell, fire, oh come on, it can't be. It is true. Just as everything else in God's word is true. Well, people say, well, then how could a God of love send someone there to hell? Listen, hell was never created for man. It was created for the devil and his demons. Man sends himself there the same way Satan and his demons have sent themselves there, through rebellion against God. Man's refusal to allow God to be the Lord of their lives. But Jesus doesn't want you uh, to go there. That's why he said, come unto me, all of you are labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I'll forgive your sin. And he may be calling some of you this morning that haven't believed in Christ yet to put, put your faith and trust in him today. But here's the deal. If you reject Christ, you can't blame God if you wind up in hell. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Wages is something you worked at. If you go to hell, it's because you've worked it hard at getting there. You turned away from Christ, and every time he knocked on the door of your heart, you just said, no, 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 and you kept turning away. But if you go to heaven, again, it's only because you trusted in Jesus Christ, His finished work upon the cross, you put your faith and trust in Him. It's that simple. But you see, here's where the battle begins. Satan wants to keep you from heaven, and God wants to keep you from hell. Satan wants to destroy you, and God wants to restore you. Satan will do whatever he can and attempt to bring destruction, especially in the life of a believer, and God will take whatever Satan dishes out and use it for good in the life of the believer. But praise God, there's going to come a time where Satan will be dealt with once and for all. And we see this in these first three verses of verse 20, as Satan is cast into this bottomless pit. Uh, remember in Isaiah 14 that Satan said, uh, you know, before he was overthrown, he said, I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. I will sit on the throne. And, 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 but the word of the God at the same moment came to him and said, you will be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Well, here we're reading about the, the devil's day of humbling. See, just moments before this, he was at the top of the heap of demon powers. Now he's going down. Now you may ask, well, how come God hasn't dealt with the devil long before this, uh, a lot sooner? Well, the answer is because that did not suit God's purposes. The matter of rebellion of the demons and the devil that would lead them had to be fully tested. It had to, to run its course. It had to be clearly shown throughout the whole universe that no one had the power to govern apart from God. So God allowed the devil to have, have his way to a point, And in the same way, God has allowed man to have his way to a point. He's allowed man to harness the technology of splitting the atom to make his advances, to attempt his plans. And he would have allowed God, uh, man to completely destroy themselves so that we can see there's no hope apart from Jesus Christ. Now, a few days right before this time that we're reading about, Satan might have thought, He's got victory. All the powers in his grasp. That he would actually be victorious 
in the battle of Armageddon. In fact, there are satanic cults that teach that in this final battle of Armageddon, Satan will be victorious. So no doubt, Satan is thinking, you know, he's near victory. He might have thought he's really on a roll. I mean, he had the the fallen angels following him. He had the Antichrist in his pocket, who was the the world leader at the time. He had the false prophet who was performing these, these satanic miracles, deceiving people. He had people worshiping him. In fact, Revelation 13, 4 said, So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who was like the beast who was able to make war with him? So full-blown satanic worship was going on, is going to be going on at this time. I mean, the devil's having his heyday. But it's all going to come crashing down to the pit. I Sometimes I wonder, you know, why he won't realize this is going to happen. Why, why doesn't he know this is going to happen? Maybe he does, or maybe he is so blinded that, again, he might actually think he's going to prevail. But, but, you know, that is what sin does to you. Sometimes we can be so intoxicated by sin, and you don't think rationally. I've shared this before. Uh, sin makes you stupid. It does. I think of Aaron over in Exodus chapter 34, where Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments. And while he was gone, the people began to worship a golden calf. But I love Aaron's excuse when Moses came back and said, Hey, this is why sin makes you stupid. You know, what's going on, Moses says. And he says to Moses, well, well, the people told me to make a, a God that will go before us. And he says, so I told them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. I can hear Moses go, and that's your excuse? Really? That's the, that's the best you can do. Threw in a bunch of gold, and out came this calf. Listen, sin does make you stupid. It makes you do things and say things that you would not normally say or do to try and cover up what's really going on. And that's why the Bible warns about the glamour and the trickery of sin and why the Bible tells us, stay away from it. Don't mess with it. Because you think you can handle it. You know, like a person who has a few drinks. You know, you can always tell a person who's had a little bit too much to drink because they try a little bit too hard to be sober. They tend to overdo things. In fact, police officers have said it's not that they're driving too fast, but they're driving too slow. They're, they're overly careful. They put their blinker like three miles before they come to the turn place. Everything's exaggerated. They're, they're trying to be cool. Maintain. Maintain. Sin can be like that. Oh, I can handle this. I can maintain this. I can control this. I'm not going to go that far. This sexual passion isn't going to get out of hand. I'm just going to, I'm going to draw the line right here. This is as far as we're going to go. That's it. I'm going to stop. I know I talk badly about this person, but I've got to tell this other person one more time. Then I won't tell anybody else. This is as far as I'm going to go with this lying. I, I will lie up until a certain point. Then I'm going to become Mr. Honesty. But to know at that point, you're already hooked into it. And you lose control. And suddenly you find that you're being reeled in once again. Again, that's why the Bible warns us to stay away, keep our distance from sin. So here we see the devil, the deceiver, the tempter, apparently intoxicated by his, by his own lies, about to be shut up. And that brings us to our second point, the servant. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
Satan's temporary home is this bottomless pit or the abyss. Earlier in Revelation, we read that the demon powers came out of this pit. Now it's time to put them back in the pit along with their commander-in-chief, Satan. One thing to point out here is to see that the conquering of Satan and his demonic army here doesn't come about because of any human efforts. It's only done by the power of God. Only Christ can ultimately order Satan's demise. Only Christ can ultimately vanquish Satan. But there's definitely some irony here. As we read that God is going to use one ordinary angel, no special distinction, to apprehend and cast Satan into the bottomless pit. I love that. I love it. He's not cast into the bottomless pit by a host of angels. Not even Michael the archangel. Just, just a simple angel. You know, we often imagine this huge cosmic struggle going on between God and Satan. Oh, we know that God will ultimately win, but, but it's touch and go for now. No way. You know, Satan is not the evil counterpart of God. God is God. There's none like him. None. Deuteronomy 4.39 tells us that. It says there, Know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven, above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. We know Satan, previously known as Lucifer, was an archangel and has always been a created being. If he had a counterpart, I think I've shared this before, it would be an archangel like Michael or Gabriel, but definitely not God. That's why when we finally see Satan from a heavenly perspective, we're told in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 16, that we'll say, is this the one who troubled the whole world? That's it? That, that's the guy that, that caused all the trouble I'm going through? But notice again, it's just a single angel. God's servant is all it takes to detain Satan. And that with one hand. Because with the other hand, he's got the, the key to the bottomless pit and the chain. So he's like, oh, I'll take care of you. <laughs> you down you go. Now, with that said, Satan is very real and he's very powerful. We all realize that. Maybe this morning you're experiencing that. Maybe there's a hellish quality in your marriage or in your family, or job site, or even in your emotions. Maybe there's a constant painful problem that you feel that you have no control over. Maybe you've said, I'm being harassed by Satan night and day, and there seems to be nothing I can do about this. Maybe it's a pull towards pornography. Maybe it's depression that bothers you night and day. Maybe it's a problem in your marriage that just won't go away. Listen, there is something you can do about it, as our morning suggests. See, since the Bible declares that we will one day rule over angels, we definitely have the authority over Satan through Jesus Christ. You see, even though this angel, this one angel, binds Satan and casts him into the bottomless pit, it's an ordinary angel acting again in the power of Christ. This reminds us of Jesus' words in John 14, 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Folks, there's unlimited power in Christ Jesus. We can say, as Paul said in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ's unlimited power is made available to this unknown angel who binds Satan and casts him into the bottomless pit. And... Christ's unlimited power is available to all of us who call upon the name of the Lord. Now this brings us to our third point, the seizing. Let's read verse 2 again. So this angel, he laid hold of that dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. I like the words in verse 2 for he laid hold of. 
That's not a, a could you come with me, please? No, this was a, a, a radical, a forceful arrest. You know, you see those, those police movies or shows on TV, and the guy starts to run, and they tackle the guys down, and they bring him in. This guy is not, I mean, he's just he's thrown down there. He's forcefully arrested. And just to make sure that we know that they got the right guy, he's described here. The dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, and Satan. Not four different beings, one being with each representative of this particular evilness of the wicked one. First he says a dragon. Dragons are cruel, brutal, bloody. Satan is cruel, brutal, and bloody. He may portray himself as a nice guy, but he's anything but. He's full of hate. Second, he's a serpent. You know, serpents, they speak of their, their subtlety, their, their craftiness. Satan is a deceiver. He's subtle, crafty, shifty. Eve was the first human being to be beguiled by him, and, but not the last. Third, we read the word devil. That simply means slanderer. He slanders God. He slanders God's word. He slanders Christians. He slanders anything good. And fourthly, we read the word Satan, and that simply means adversary. He's not on the side of righteousness. He shows up, shows up with contempt and hostility to all that is good. But again, here we read that this angel simply lays hold of him. The devil throws him down, arrests him forcefully, and then binds him for a thousand years. Now, there are those who say we are in the millennial kingdom right now and that Satan is bound today. Which I say, if he's bound, he's got a really, really long chain. I mean, it's, it's happening. Perhaps you heard people say, well, well, you know, we can bind Satan today. Lord, we just bind you in the name of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Is there a way that we can bind Satan now? Well, well, yes and no. Simply by saying, I bind you, Satan, it doesn't work. And I'll show you why in a moment. But understand, Satan is a, a powerful foe. But he does have his limitations and his vulnerabilities. And we have to understand as believers, as a church, what they are. He has demons to do his bidding. You know, I, I would probably say none of us really have been attacked by Satan himself, but plenty of demons have come after us. We're just, you know, we're just small fish in a big sea, you know. But as his demons that do his bidding, and their agenda seems to be twofold. Number one, they seek to hinder the purposes of God, obviously. And number two, they seek to extend the power of Satan. Again, their purpose, the demons are, are, are saying themselves, is to hinder the purposes of God and extend Satan's power. Always opposing what God wants to do. Paul wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. He says, Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Now Paul would have been considered a big fish in the sea, and Satan, I'm sure, went after him. Paul even mentioned his own personal struggles that he had as demons were allowed to attack him. Some would say, well, Paul, you should have said, I bind you, Satan, in Jesus' name, and that would have took care of it. But that's not the case here, because again, God allows Satan to do certain things in the life of the believer that you or I can't stop. In fact, a great example of this over in the book of Job. Behind the scenes, we get a glimpse of what's going on in the supernatural realm there. Listen to this. This is Job 1, 6-10 in the New Living Translation. It says, One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, 
Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man on all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. Essentially, we have a picture here of God bragging on Job. And I read that, and of course, my first thought is, Lord, if you're ever proud of anything I do, please do not brag about me when this guy's around, okay? Because you know how the story goes, how Satan attacked him, and wave after wave, he lost his family, he lost his home, he lost his livestock, he lost his health. It was horrible. Now, why didn't they, Job pray to bind Satan and none of this would have happened? But see, that's not how any of this works. God allows these things to take place in Job's life for a purpose, for a reason. As well as Satan made an accurate statement when he said to God, you put, always put a wall of protection around him. I always found it fascinating when, when uh, uh, Christians pray, Lord, we just want to put a hedge of protection around uh, us. The hedge you get right through a hedge. You have clippers, you know, run right through a hedge. But a wall here, I mean, this is, this is solid. And that's true of every Christian. There's a wall of protection up in your life. You say, well, Job went through hardship. Where was the wall then? It was still there. Just because you're under God's protection doesn't mean you're not going to face hardships. Doesn't mean you won't be tempted. You might say, well, I think temptation is horrible. Why does God allow it? Well, you might... Uh, you know, be surprised to know that temptation can have a positive effect on our lives. Martin Luther said, one Christian who has been tempted is worth a thousand who haven't been. See, the idea is to be tempted, but to ignore the temptation and then come through it having resisted it. It's not the temptation itself. James 1.12 tells us, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Temptation has a way of showing who the true believers are compared to the false ones. It's been said that Christians are a lot like tea bags. You don't know what they're made of until you put them in hot water. And that really is often the hot waters of temptations that show the real believers from the fake ones. See, Paul would know physically the attack of Satan because he writes about being tormented by him. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, after he had had a vision of heaven, they believed Paul was stoned, and actually, stoned to death and actually died and had a vision of heaven, came back to earth again. And the things that he saw just blew him away. And he writes this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, Even though I received such a wonderful revelation from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and to keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, that doesn't mean that the Lord, uh, that a de- Lord allowed the demon to possess Paul or control him because that can't happen in the life of a Christian. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean you won't be tempted. And in Paul's case, he was afflicted. He was buffeted. Not thought that it was some sort of physical infirmity, possibly with his eyes that he's speaking of that thorn in the flesh. But three times the Lord asked 
to be, have it taken away. But the Lord said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. God allowed it in Paul's life to make him humble uh, and, and broken because of this incredible revelation that he saw. But here's my point. It came from Satan. Satan's attack was there, and Paul had to deal with it on a daily basis in his life, just like Job did. But God had a plan and a purpose in each one going through it. That's why we're told by Paul in Ephesians 6.10 to the Ephesian church, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And I like that because it's a continual sense that it speaks of there. Paul is saying, my brethren, be daily strengthened. Listen, it's only through the power of God that we can get through any day, any moment, really. And we're constantly to be receiving that power from the Lord and going forth in His power and in His might. And this is important to realize, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, we have no power of ourselves to resist or or bind, if you will, the devil than we did when we first got saved. Because again, the power is not from us, it's from God. Thus the necessity to walk in the Spirit, to reckon our own lives dead, to sin and alive to Christ. But again, here's our conflict. We are exposed to these evil spirits who are haters of God and of our Savior Jesus Christ, And they seek to bring dishonor to our Lord by which we are called, by leading us into things that that grieve the Holy Spirit and bring discredit upon our testimony. And we're going to have to face this until the Lord takes us home, but we have a weapon against our enemy. I'll point that out in a moment. That brings us to our our last point, the sentence. Let's look at verse 2 and 3 again. We read, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Verse 3, and he cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Satan is sentenced to punishment for his evil. There's no trial. There's no jury. It's just the execution of punishment. Here it is, you are sentenced to the bottomless pit, shut up, sealed, so you should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Now don't think that after the thousand years he's released for good. He's just got a temporary parole, as we'll see next week, before he's ultimately thrown into that lake of fire, joining the beast and the false prophet, and be tormented day and night forever. But praise God, we read here, that no more will he deceive the nations. Let me tell you this right now. Satan is deceiving the nation in this world like never before. His biggest weapon is that of deception. Listen to these formal definitions for the words deceive, deceit, deception, and deceitful from a variety of different sources. And as you hear them, think about how they apply to our adversary, the devil, and listen to some of the verses I put with them. First word, deceive. Definition, to make a statement, carry out an act, or use some device intended to mislead, fraud, trick, the action or practice of deceiving someone by concealing or misrepresenting the truth, act of keeping the truth hidden, especially to gain some advantages. What do we know? Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11:14. How about the word deceit? Concealment or distortion of the truth for the purpose of misleading, the act of representing as true what is known to be false, a trick, something that is done to mislead. What do we know? Genesis 3.1. Let 
Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? How about the word deception? The act of tricking someone by telling them something that is not true. When people hide the truth, especially to get an advantage, actions and or schemes fabricated to mislead and or delude someone into errantly believing a lie or inaccuracy. What do we know of the devil? Genesis 3, 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. One more. Deceitful. Guilty of or involving deceit, deceiving or misleading others, marked by deliberate deceptiveness, especially by pretending one set of feelings and acting under the influence of another. What do we know? Again, Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See, every definition of deceit and deception goes back to the garden with the deception of Adam and Eve as, as God is holding out on them and, and continues, he continues with the same lie today. Satan has no new arsenal against us. He seeks to kill, rob, and destroy and he simply does it through deception. He wants people to think uh, to deceive people into thinking that the things that are harmful to us really are good things and God is just holding out on us. Isaiah warned about this in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. I'll say this again. The nations today of this world are being deceived on a grand scale by none other than Satan. He's causing the nations to believe a lie. He's telling us that the broad road is the right one. But the Bible warns it's a way that seems right to man, but it leads to death. See, when Bible-believing Christians stand up and say the Bible says homosexuality is a sin and God hates sin, but loves the sinners, Satan has the world so deceived that they call what God's Word says hate speech. When we as believers say that God's Word says that marriage is between a man and a woman and anything else God calls sin, Satan has the world so deceived that they call what God's Word says hate speech. When we as believers say that God's word says that in the beginning God created male and female, Mark 6, and anything else God calls sin, but man now says that they have the right to say how they were created and to choose what gender they want, Satan has the world so deceived that they call what God's word says hate speech. Again, Isaiah warned of this time. He says, those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And it's only going to get worse. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.13, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's why as a child of God, we're told over and over and over again, do not be deceived. Let no one deceive you. And that's why in the end we read Satan, he's going to be bound for a thousand years in that bottomless pit, shut up still so that that he should no longer deceive the nations any longer. I can't wait till this guy's bound. I, I, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, is there a way that we can bind Satan now? I believe so, but it's not simply by, by saying a prayer, I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. How can we bind Satan now? Well, three ways, and then we'll close. First, we bind Satan by knowing the truth. By knowing the truth. Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32 to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciple indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. How do we bind Satan and keep from being deceived? By abiding in God's word. 
David said, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you, Psalm 119.11. It's been said, this book will keep you from sin, and this sin, sin will keep you from this book. Satan cannot work his deception in the life of the believer if the believer knows the word of God. Secondly, we bind Satan by not giving in to his temptations. James 4, 7 tells us, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This too goes back to the word of God. I think of over in Matthew chapter 4 when, when Satan took Jesus out to the wilderness to, to tempt him. Three different times Jesus was tempted. And three different times Jesus resisted and quoted scripture. And then thirdly, we bind Satan by not responding in our flesh. Listen, the devil is bound, not when we quote the word of God, but when we live the word of God. We're told in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I love that. There's a great picture of this found over in 2 Kings chapter 6. You can turn there if you want or just write down the reference. You can look it up later when you get home. But there we read of an instance. Uh, an account where a man named Elisha, about a man named Elisha and his servant. Now Syria, they were led by this king named Ben-Hadad. And he was wanting to do battle with Israel. Ben-Hadad, actually his name means shouting. He's a fitting picture of Satan, who according to Revelation 12.10, shouts accusations against the brethren both day and night. Ben-Hadad would, would, uh, uh, he would, thought he would set up camp and ambush God's people, much in the same way Satan tries to ambush us. But Elisha, knowing this, God revealing it to him, warned the king of Israel, and Ben-Hadad was stopped in his attempt to destroy Israel. This happened two more times, the three times total, with the king of Israel being forewarned of Ben-Hadad's plan, so much so that Ben-Hadad was sure he had a traitor in their camp, to which he was told, hey, it's not the case, 2 Kings 6.12, but a man named Elisha is to blame. He says, this guy tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. I like that. Well, when Benny found this out, he sent his troops to either destroy or employ Elisha. In verse 14 there of 2 Kings, it says, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when Elisha's servant woke up, he sees this massive army uh, surrounding them. No doubt he's freaking out. Maybe you've felt that way before where Satan has come against you. And it looks as though there's no way out and you're overwhelmed and freaked out. Listen, there's hope. Elisha says to his servant Gehazi in verse 16, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. (laughs) I think Gehazi must have thought, Elisha's flipped out. He's lost it. He's nuts. What are you talking about? Those with us are more with them. Have you seen them? Oh, man, this guy, I mean, he thinks we outnumber them. He's nuts. Well, Elisha no doubt knew what David knew when he wrote Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. So Elisha prayed. Verse 17 says, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I love that. Gets a glimpse into the supernatural world. That would have been so cool. 
I could see Elisha's servant kind of rubbing his eyes and going, what? What is going on? This is, oh man, this is amazing. Now the Syrians, they didn't have a clue that they were surrounded. And they started to move towards Elisha. Now, before Elisha kept blowing the whistle on everything they did, the Syrians' main purpose was to have victory over Israel. And they were looking for Israel's king, trying to do him in. But as they moved towards uh, Elisha, it says in verse 18 that Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now, it's in that blind state that they heard Elisha say, This is not where you want to be. I'll bring you to the man you're looking for. Well, then all of a sudden, once there, the Lord opens their eyes. And now the Syrian army is standing in front of the, the king of Israel right there. I'm sure they couldn't believe their eyes. Same men that thought to kill and destroy. Now they're standing there vulnerable, weak. Now Israel, seeing that their enemy was right there in front of them, the king of Israel asked Elisha, should we kill them? Now if it were me, you betcha. Let's get them. Let, man, they tried to kill us three times. They wanted to command them. Wipe them out. Let's, let's kill them. Yeah. Not Elisha. No, he doesn't do that. Instead, verse 23 of 2 Kings 6, instead of killing them, this is what we read. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. What? You were nice to them? Wait a minute. But you see, folks, that is how Satan is bound. Elisha didn't pace the floor and shake his fist and shout, In the name of Jesus, I bind you, Benadad. No, he bound Satan in an entirely different way. He fed rather than fought his enemies. Listen, if you're attacked by Satan through your, your boss, don't retaliate in the flesh. Rather, bless. Bless your boss. Show them kindness. If someone tells you what you're saying is hate speech, don't apologize for it. It's God's word. But don't respond in your flesh. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. My point is that overcoming evil, binding Satan, is not a phrase that we say, it's a deed that we do. Let me say that again. Overcoming evil, binding Satan, is not a phrase that we say, it's a deed that we do. We do it through three ways. Abiding in God's word, resisting temptation, being kind to our enemies by not responding in our flesh. That's how we bind the enemy. I think of over back in, in Matthew's Gospel, right before Jesus is teaching on binding the strong man, he gave this example. He said in Matthew twelve twenty two, it says, And one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. You know why I like that? Jesus didn't demonize, didn't grill this demonized man about unconfessed sin. He didn't jump on him for his lack of faith. He didn't accuse a man of messing around with Ouija boards, and that's why he's in the place he's in, or drugs or crystals. He didn't march around the demonized man and say, I bind you, Satan, I bind you, Satan. Didn't do that. He did good to the demonized man. He healed him. He healed him. Jesus modeled for us what we might call aggressive goodness. And that's how Satan is bound. We must do the same. Bring candy to your boss who's stingy. You know, make dinner for the wife who's cranky. Buy a shirt for the husband who's moody. I don't know. Give flowers to the neighbors that fussy. 
Folks, don't allow the enemy to get a stronghold in your life by being deceived and letting yourself believe his lies. You don't need to get even. You do not need to retaliate. Rather, Luke 6.28, Jesus says, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ has forgiven you. Move in such a way that Satan has no power over you whatsoever. And understand, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the stronger we become in our walk with the Lord, those areas where Satan has a stronghold will become fewer and fewer and weaker and weaker in our lives. One final thing. The title of this study was Time to Clean Up. And that's exactly what the Lord's going to do. We'll see next week Satan is going to be bound again for a thousand years during this time called the Millennial Reign of Christ. After that thousand years, he's going to be released again only to ultimately face that same fate, the false prophet, the Antichrist will face, and that's being cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, along with all those that have rejected Jesus Christ, his gift of salvation, those that's name were not found written in the book of life. They're going to face a great white throne judgment. As I said earlier, God is very clear. He wants us to understand that when judgment comes, the lake of fire is not something that will ever be put out. People who are alive will be there. Death is not just going into darkness, into nothingness. Death is something that when we get to that place in our lives, as I said already, when we die, we're going to go to either one of two places, either heaven and glory of God because we've confessed our sin, we believe in Jesus Christ, or hell because we've rejected Christ and said, I don't want your gift. So as we close, where are you at this morning? If this was your last day, if this was your last hour of Christ's return right now for his church, would you be raptured out of here? Or would you be one who experienced this terrible tribulation period that we've been reading about over and over and over again? Are you confident that you would go to heaven to be with Jesus? If not, uh, I pray that you would not leave here without making that commitment to Christ. We're told to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become sons of God. See, you can't do what is right on your own. You can't fight this fight on your own. You need the power of God in your life. You need the forgiveness of your sin. So I invite you, if you've never given your life to Christ, come to Him this morning. Put your faith and trust Him. Trust and believe and keep fighting the fight. Again, greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time this morning, Lord. Thank You for Your Word. And I do pray if there's anyone here that is yet to make that commitment to You, Lord, that they would not... Hmm, wait another moment for they surrender their heart and life to you. And Father, I pray for all of us here, Lord. We understand we have a real adversary. It is the devil, but Lord, you created this creature. You have all power and strength. And Lord, you will not allow anything to happen to us from him that doesn't pass through you first. So help us, Lord, to rely on your power your strength, to learn the lessons you have us to learn the first time so we don't have to go through the same trials over and over and over again. Lord, help us to keep our minds and hearts focused on you. Fill us with the power of your spirit that we might honor you with our lives completely, Lord, until you come to take us home. Thank you for the hope of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.